0: Welcome to episode 24 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. Today's guest is Keith Stummer. Keith is a veteran public land hunter who has a wealth of knowledge and over 40 years of experience. Keith has taken some great bucks in that time, and he has taken most of them with traditional archery equipment in a big wood setting. No easy task. In this episode, Keith shares some of his highly advanced e-scouting methods, his tips for navigating the vast expanses of the big woods, his favorite tactics and setups for big woods bucks, and a ton of helpful gear tips. I took away a ton of great information from this episode, I'm sure you will too. Quick note, Keith and I talk about some e-scouting tactics, many of which I have discussed and featured on my blog. If you're looking to level up your e-scouting this year, head on over to my blog and give those scouting articles a read. I'll post a link to those articles in the description. Also, real quick, I'd like to say thanks to everyone out there who has subscribed to my YouTube channel or followed me on your favorite podcast app. I really appreciate all the support. And that support helps keep me motivated to put out these podcasts with great guests like Keith. If you haven't already subscribed or shared this podcast with a friend, it'd mean a lot to me if you did. Thanks again. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Visit the Stealth Outdoors store to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear. Turkey season is just around the corner, so don't delay. Order some stealth strips today, silence your turkey gear, or make some last minute updates in the off season to your mobile hunting setup. Thousands of satisfied hunters have silenced their gear using the products from Stealth Outdoors. Designed from the ground up with the mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Don't let unwanted noise get you busted this season. Visit www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and place an order today. Now, on to the podcast. All right, today I got Keith Stummer on the phone. Keith, how are you doing today?
1: Uh, I'm doing really well. How are you doing, Jeremy?
0: It's, uh, we've talked about it a little bit before we got rolling here. We're having, both having great weather, so no complaints here.
1: Yeah, I know. It's wonderful. Birds are chirping, and it's, it's, it's cool.
0: It's cool. So, Keith, for people that are listening that aren't already familiar with you from the hunting beasts where you go by the name Clems, can you give us a brief introduction, maybe where you live, how long you've been bow hunting whitetails, maybe how you got into hunting, and what keeps you coming back?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I'm 62 years old. I've lived in the same town my entire life. I, I'm still here and working here. Uh, it's a small town in, her medium sized town in Keno. It's called Kenosha, the infamous Kenosha, Wisconsin. Oh boy. I know. Yeah, yeah. Pretty disappointing stuff there. But, you know, I grew up on the edge of town. I had a field and an orchard and a pond all behind my house and spent hours back there catching frogs and tadpoles and shooting BB guns and other than that, I was playing pick up baseball all summer long until the streetlights came on and you know it was, a, it was a great time back in the you know late 60s early 70s there's not a lot of organized stuff that the kids were doing and that was fine with me you know um i don't know uh, bows and arrows i never really got was introduced to them until i went to a summer camp one time i was maybe 11 or 12 and they had this archery thing and found out like hey i I think this is pretty cool. And we had a little archery tournament. I won the camp tournament and I thought that was pretty hot stuff, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Fast forward a little bit, me and my dad, when I was 17, this is like 1976, we went down to this local, uh, archery shop, which was actually in a garage and some guy had operated out of and bought a, bought a couple of, um, recurve bows, Damon Howitt recurves and, you know, He didn't know anything about bow hunting, and I didn't know anything about deer hunting at all. And it took me a while, several years, before I got a a, a deer with that. Uh, With a button buck, it was my very first one. And I don't know, all through high school, I was fishing and hunting with buddies. And, you know, to this day, 45 years later, I'm hunting and fishing with the same guys, you know, mostly hunting, but I'll get back into fishing pretty soon, I think. Been blessed with good health and good friends. And, you know, what keeps me coming back? I would say, nature just makes sense to me. It's like my, one of my only places where I'm out in the woods where I feel just truly relaxed. And so, you know, hunting bucks with a bow is like a match made in heaven for me. So, uh, glad I was, uh, able to find that.
0: Yeah. I think you hear that a lot. And that's a consistent theme with a lot of, uh, hunters, bow hunters in general is that harmony with nature, feeling like that's where you belong. And, and a lot of that, you know, we could debate on that, but a lot of that's missing and, modern society. That's a whole rabbit hole. We don't need to get down, but yeah, I think that's a common theme for a lot of guys.
1: Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it and uh, I understand. So I'm glad I'm in that uh, category.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So Keith, for people that don't know, and I know this, but you're primarily a big woods hunter and that's one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today. So let's start out. What is your basic strategy for consistently killing mature bucks in the big woods? Because from what I've seen on the beast, you have consistent success or, or very consistent or fairly consistent success year after year. And also for people that don't know, you're hunting, bow hunting primarily with traditional equipment. So what's the what's the secret sauce there, Keith?
1: Yeah, the secret sauce. Well, I'll put it this way. I, my main experience is bow hunting early November. We, since 1990, I've been going up there with my buddies that I just mentioned, you know, and then uh, trying to figure it out. And then we're talking national forest up by like 20 miles, 30 miles from Lake Superior. You know, it's fast, like a thousand square miles of just, it's my woods. You know, I, I can go anywhere. So I don't know, I don't really consider myself an expert in any way, but uh, up there I figured out some ways to get way more efficient than I used to be, you know, to put it in perspective, like the first 20 years of me hunting up there, 20 plus years. I was big time on hunting funnels and cruising corridors and all the stuff I was reading about in magazines and such, which basically was all we had, basically, you know, uh, at that point. And really over those 20 years, I, kind of looking at my journals and stuff, I had like a 20% success rate over that time period on three and a half year old and older bucks. So, like, you know, one out of five years I would get one, something like that average. And that was back when there was maybe 15 deer per square mile, possibly more. So you know, fast forward a little bit about the last eight years or so, I've completely changed the way I hunt up there based mainly on what I've learned from the hunting beast and the group of, you know, farm members and that. But, um, you know, for, for the last eight years, with the deer population being significantly lower, like five deer per square mile, but yet I've got a 50% success rate over these last eight years, which means like, you know, geez, the deer population went down. 65 percent but my success went up like what is that 150 percent so I guess we're here to talk about what I'm doing different to have that happen it can be very tough up there I, I know guys that have gone entire seasons and not seen a single deer or not seasons but our week-long period you know it's easy to go a whole decade and not shoot a deer we've had guys in our group fall into that category and that's just a little disheartening we have guys leave they don't even hunt up there anymore they you know spotland and down in whatever, somewhere else. And they're doing it that way now. Um, my strategy, what I changed is, you know, I got on the hunting beast back from the very beginning, basically. And uh, and back then, I mean, everybody was studying that. Everybody was new back then. And we were all excited and, and really learning about bedding terrain in those first few years on the beast is kind of the first way, that I started making some progress. And then at some point, uh, it was a guy named Magic Man, Todd Havel, on the beach. You know, he said, you know, you need to find a deer before you, you you set up anywhere. And he was just very adamant about that. And I started doing that. And as soon as I started doing that, I started racking up success. And it's like, wow. So all those other years of me hunting funnels, you know, well, you well think of it this way: ten percent of the woods has the deer in it, and that ten percent is changing from year to year, or even from week to week. And you got to find them, you know. So I was when I was going up there hunting funnels and all that. I was basically sitting in, in the ninety percent of the woods that had no deer, basically. You know, maybe I got lucky one year, but uh, so now going in and finding them first is, you know, looking for them. You know, how how do you find them? You, you kind of, you learn the bedding, like I already said, but then when you're scouting both springtime and wild hunting, I'm just checking those spots that should have the sign. I just walk right past everything else. So I'm sure I'm walking past stuff I don't even notice, but when I get to the spots that I think should have deer, it just makes it much easier to see the sign when you know it's either going to be there or not. Okay. But if it's there, you're going to see it because you're concentrating on it. So, I mean, that's kind of a big one. It's just kind of look where, and and when I say that it's the general bedding, I'm not, I tried for a long time to hunt specific buck beds and this and that, and I can tell you I've had better success going for general bedding areas, areas, you know, maybe it's a 20 acre area that has just multiple type of terrain features and, and densities of vegetation and whatever, water and stuff that but there's just multiple opportunities for bedding in there and then getting adjacent to that with different techniques. I will talk later, but I just have way more success seeing all, all caliber of deer doing that and trying to sneak into, you know, sight and sound rain or whatever. You know, Dan teaches the marshes and all that. I, it, I don't know. That's just me, I guess. But, uh, you know, and then uh, one other thing I've been doing more recently is, yeah. I mean, you got all that. I already told you about You're getting the bedding and finding the fresh sign and all that, but I kind of I'm, I'm even fine tuning it more now. Is I'm picking bedding areas that have some advantageous logistics nearby. Like you know, you get a little twenty tree clump of oaks right next to the bedding area in this little corner there. uh, uh That's pretty uh pretty good way to get close to deer. I can tell you from my experience. Other things like I look for like old logging roads, when I say old, I mean, people are not walking on these things, hunting grouse and and stuff like that. They were reclaimed by nature, you know, because they're like 120 years old or whatever they are. Yeah, sure. But the sections of them that aren't reclaimed are are just like deer magnets. I don't know how to describe it. And and so if you find all the other stuff and you got these kind of features adjacent to that, that just ups the odds even more. That's kind of been my strategy the last few years and it's definitely helping me you know even more so i mean it's kind of the in a nutshell what i'm i've been doing you got to have efficient light equipment so you can get anywhere i mean we don't even have to talk about that you know about that but uh the system is what i just described in a in a nutshell i guess
0: well there's a lot of common themes from my own experience i want to unpack a few of those the first one is you talked about picking bedding areas versus individual beds. And I think one of the big takeaways for me and probably a lot of other people that I know that employ the beast tactics is when you first learn about beast tactics or you read about Dan, you know, you expect to find this super well-worn bed, you know, worn to dirt in hill country or, or packed down cattails in a marsh. And while that does happen occasionally, I think that's more the exception than the rule. And more often, or at least what I'm finding, and it sounds like you are too, is you're focusing on bedding areas or terrain that can be bedding areas and you know kind of utilizing those rather than worrying about finding a very identifiable specific bed
1: yeah well that's that's a very good explanation I, I agree with that
0: and then a few other things here so finding the deer first I know I've been hunting out of state quite a while now I think I started 2013 2014 somewhere around there and had very marginal results at first and one of the things that i definitely do now especially the last couple of years that i didn't do before is i get really aggressive especially on these shorter hunts you know where you got five days seven days maybe you got 10 where i get real aggressive getting into these areas almost trying to spook deer just to find the deer and it goes along with what you said you know the deer are in 10 percent of the area so don't waste your time in the 90 percent. get in there and one of the follow-up questions i had for you on that is when you're in the big woods or up north, are you worried about spooking deer?
1: Uh, I would say at that time frame where I'm hunting them, uh, no. I think it's an advantage. When I'm walking to these spots that I want to check out, if I kick up some tails and they're running around, I mean, I'm automatically stopping and thinking, okay, why are they here? What's the features around here? You know, if it's like 8.30 in the morning and I'm walking around I say, and I kick a couple does up, I'm pretty darn sure I'm close to doe bedding because they're heading back right around that time. So I don't know. I, I like kicking up deer. I don't think it's anything as big of a problem as it is like early season down and hunting the marshlands and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's you got way more freedom to bump deer up there and get away with it. In my opinion, at that, at that
0: time frame. Yeah, I would agree a hundred percent. And you brought up a real important, important point there. And I agree completely as is- if you're hunting an early season buck, I think in my experience, you got one, maybe two, and in a very rare case, maybe you get a third chance at hunting that deer before he's on you and he's out of there. But during the rut, like you said, first week in November, you can, I don't know if sloppy is the right word, but I just don't worry about it as much because you know, the bucks are different than they're roaming around a lot anyway. So it's not as big a deal to me that time of year.
1: Yeah, I've, w- I've witnessed them walking right over my... Track to i walked in on and and honestly i've been sitting i don't even go very high anymore i 14 feet is like as high as i'll go even in the telephone pole and at that, again at that time frame it doesn't matter and so i'm cutting down on the gear and the climbing time and all that and only sitting 14 feet up and i don't seem to be getting picked off and it's making my shot angles easy and and you know just i don't think at that in, in the woods up there at that time the guy's got to climb real high. And I think, honestly, the wolves have something to do with that. I think the deer are spending more time looking over their shoulders at, at ground level than looking up in the trees. And the only time they see humans in the trees is around bait piles. So, yeah, looking around for me at 14 feet. So it, it kind of gives you some freedom to cut back on some of the gear you carry around, I think.
0: That's a real good point with the wolves. Uh, I could see that for sure. Last thing on your initial response or that I want to touch on, and it's because I've seen this myself too, is logging roads. And I think you nailed it when you said not ones that are still getting pounded by small game and grouse hunters, but those ones that are reclaimed. One of the first good bucks I ever shot was on that exact scenario in kind of hilly terrain. And then uh, I've hunted a few other areas where, if you can find those, especially during the rut, those are those can be golden.
1: Uh, let me tell you, my buddy, this year got uh, a huge body deer. I don't know, maybe a hundred. Forty inches. I don't know if he if he even measured it, but anyway, the way he got that thing, it was October twenty sixth. He got it on a scrape, and when I after the fact, I was looking at it on the maps, and uh, it is a a place where there's like logging roads. The way they used to log it and lay out the roads is back, you know, it was kind of like a tree it had the main trunk and then branches off of that. So without him even knowing that, he was hunting on the trunk. So there was like seven different logging road that constricted down to his trunk, okay, and then another logging road crossed over to perpendicular to that, and that's where he always saw scrapes when he was hiking to some other place, so he decided he was going to put a camera there, and he, any, anyway, that spot is 800 yards, open hardwood from that intersection of, you know, old logging roads to bedding, uh, 800 yards north and west. there's nice bedding for, and he's had big bucks in there in the past, so those things are coming out, you know, 800 yards from wide open hardwoods, get to those scrapes, and he shot it, you know, in daylight, uh, and there was, was pictures in previous days of big ones coming out in daylight to that spot, and those logging roads, I'm telling you, there's something about them that are just irresistible to those animals. It's kind of amazing.
0: Yeah, that's a great segue into the next thing I want to talk about, Keith, which is looking at maps. I know you put a ton of work in reviewing maps, and, and probably have what I've learned to be an above average knowledge of map reading. So talk to me about some of your favorite mapping techniques and what cyber scouting techniques have you found in your own experience that translate into consistent results once you put boots on the ground when you're scouting or when the season rolls around.
1: All right. Well, I have a confession, Jeremy. Jeremy. Uh, my name is Keith and I'm a mapaholic. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, I'm a geek with the maps. Uh, but I honestly think that, Probably my strongest asset as a whitetail hunter is my ability to kind of look in deeper into the information that's there. I could get into some history and all that, but let's just go right to the mapping stuff here. My most important tool for mapping is the, the Google Earth Pro. And everybody I know that's a serious deer hunter uses that. And But the reason I find it important is not because of the historical imagery thing although that's that's a huge feature okay that's not why i like google earth so much the thing about google earth is i can take any map from any i mean I can take a paper map and then make a copy or i can get i don't know a screenshot off a gis aerial on my computer and i can overlay it into google earth and so you can you can take any map and overlay it over any other map your map of choice you're not limited to what you know, the software only allows you to see type of thing. Any map you want, you can overlay it with another map. And so I get pretty creative with my overlays. You know, it's kind of like Cal Topo. Everybody's familiar with that probably, where you can use, use that translucency slider and look at different maps and different... It's like that, except you're not limited to just what Cal Topo gets you. So the power is you can analyze stuff kind of at a different level, I guess. Um My favorite overlay, if we'll call it, uh, on the put in the Google Earth is that LIDAR imagery, which I know you're familiar with because you had that great blog about that. You may, you put, you assemble, well, to get it in there is sometimes easy. <laughs> if Cal Topo has it in your area, you can just send it on over. Or sometimes you have to do screenshots of whatever site you have and build like a little mosaic of screenshots to get your area on there. But even if you have to do that, it's worth the homework. Okay. Because, Once you have it, you can analyze any other map with that translucency slider overlaid and just see things that you you don't normally see. Like, you know, if you're looking at, like, I know the place called Hill Map, you got topo on one side and aerial on the right side, and they're identical, but you got to sort of, I don't know, my brain doesn't work that way. I got to have them overlaid. So, by overlaying the lidar with, for example, that, um, on the Google Earth, if you go way to the left with the slider, at least in my area, it's a black and white picture that was taken like 30 years ago. But it's leaf off, and it shows you the densities of vegetation, and just you can tell what's swamp and what's not. And it's just a really cool picture, even though it's 30 years old. When you put LiDAR and kind of blend those two together, I'm telling you, you can see, you can pick out bedding areas just instantly, just like that. Or do the same thing with just a standard Tapo with the LIDAR in there. And, you know, so you can start layering different things together. So anyway, the Google Earth Pro, anybody that is up for it, you should experiment with doing overlays of different maps and just playing around with it and seeing what it, you can figure out about your areas. You know, um, I had mentioned uh, to you, at, I think at some point, I don't remember when, but I had figured out a way to find oak trees like where... Where are the oak trees? There's another site that you can go to that I've kind of grown very fond of. It's called the Sentinel Hub Playground. I don't know uh, why it's called that, but uh, it's just free satellite imagery, and it has about five years' worth of pictures on there at this point. But, like, every five days or so, there's a new satellite image. Unfortunately, you know, two-thirds of them are cloud-covered, but you get a good clear one. And it can show you stuff. And I figured out that if you take that image that was taken about uh, October 18th to October 26th, up north, Wisconsin anyway, the maples have all dropped, but the oaks are still holding their leaves. And I mean, you can see every <laughs> every oak tree grove out there. So I did that. I mapped it, the whole area that I hunt, and I put it on Google Earth and I circle them all, the little oak groves, and so then I can look at where the bedding is and it, when you see those line up with, you know, five acres of oaks or one acre of oaks right next to bedding, that's pretty powerful stuff right there. And I mean, you can look at that many different ways. That, but I was—if you look at it in the winter time with that satellite stuff, you can see clear cuts. The snow's on the ground, so you can just see the rectangular things or all the where it's just easy to pick that out. And if you take that image and again overlay it onto Google Earth and just have like any old Google Earth. Leaf on picture underneath it, let's say, and you blend them, it's simple to see where all the logging was done recently versus not. You know, and I know Onyx has a layer that shows your recent logging as a date and all, on there and all that. And that's all great and then convenient and and it's spot on from what I can tell. But I can also tell you that Onyx does not have all the, the clear cuts, whereas the satellite imagery does. So you're gonna be one step ahead of the onyx boys if you're using this because I've already found I don't really hunt clear cuts but I found a couple now that are not on the onyx and they're like and it's like I think they're off the beaten path and I'm excited to explore that a little bit you know so stuff like that is pretty pretty cool to do um another one of my favorites is as I already mentioned it was al Tapo, and you know and I know you know that because uh, I saw it in your blog but they do have the lidar imagery in that, but it's only like, yeah, fifty percent of the U.S. is covered at this point. Right. But the guy said that that they're going to be filling in the gaps, and by twenty twenty three, they should have the whole country. But yeah, we'll see about that. You know, well, uh, if you got it, and you don't, you do not have to pay for it to understand if you have it or not. And I would say, if you have it in your hunting area, I would pay the fifty bucks to be, you know, a pro, the Kelso Pro member, because you can. Make all these fancy KMZ maps and send them over to uh, Google Earth, just simple as pie. And it's amazing stuff, really, when you, you can do that. So, for whoever's interested, I mean, the CalTampo Pro is probably worth it if you got that LiDAR coverage in your area. In order to tell if you have LiDAR coverage, I know there's that little map you had it on your blog, and I don't know how a guy could find that, but uh, basically, if you can see logging roads and man made roadbeds and stuff like that it's lidar if you're not seeing that then it's just the google terrain view and it kind of looks the same from a distance but up close lidar is 10 times better you know sure but uh i don't know in a nutshell those are some of the things i've been doing with that
0: well i want to say keith a ton of absolutely awesome tips and to anyone that's listening to this you might want to pause here rewind listen to that section again and take some notes so i took some notes uh some things i knew some things i didn't know so first of all, a shameless plug here. Keith you mentioned my blog. If you don't <laughs> if, if you don't know what Keith's talking about with lidar or Caltopo, you can go to my blog at goingforbrokeoutdoors.com/blog and I've got one blog article on what I do for scouting uh, using Caltopo and then I've got another one about lidar and I I've, I've talked about lidar a little bit on the blog, but for people that don't know, lidar is kind of like the same concept of radar. Except instead of bouncing sound waves off something to get a an image of what it looks like in radar, they're bouncing light waves off the terrain, and the fidelity and the resolution on this stuff is incredible. I mean, you can see like one foot contours, and I've been using that lately quite a bit. So that's one thing. Uh, Second thing, Keith, you talked about making overlays in Google Earth Pro. So if you're using a custom map, and this is something that I haven't done a ton, so good question for you. How are you lining up or scaling your overlay maps? Are you picking up like common points of interest, like roads, or how are you scaling those maps to make sure your overlays are correct?
1: Well, it's a little intimidating at first. And I know there's a lot of information out there. And I know Garrett Fall, I think his name is DIY Sportsman Guy. I think he did one uh, on how to do that like six years ago or something like that. But anyway, you know, the, the trick is you kind of. When you take a screenshot of an aerial, just to, to save it as a JPEG. Let's say a, a nice leaf-off picture on your uh, GIS county site. You know, when you you kind of want to have Google Earth open to and have a the altitude about the same scale as the picture that you just screenshot. So when you enter the overlay in, it's fairly close in size, so you don't have to be stretching and dragging it all over the place, but you know, it's kind of hard to describe in words, but basically you try to get, I think, the center crossbar, you, and you'll see what I mean. It's like, uh, well, I don't know what to call it, just crossbars, crosshairs. You can kind of drag the crosshairs and, and, and line up the <laughs> the two images. you got to have the translucency kind of so you can see both, so maybe at 50%. And you have to just pick out something like a pond or a road intersection or a, a big tree that really stay, stands out. You can see in both pictures and kind of center that and you just do the same on each side, kind of dragging, pulling as you need to line up things. I, I would look it up on the internet. I mean, it's hard to describe that. But honestly, once you figure out how to do it, it doesn't take a lot of time to do it. And you don't have to be as precise as you think you might have to be. If you're just a little bit askew, it, when you're in a field, it, it makes no difference at all. So it's a little bit of a homework assignment, as I said, but it, when you do it once, and you got it forever so you know we we do all sorts of crazy things for this hunting that we do and this just one more little thing that you crazy thing you can do to help and it, it does help uh, believe me
0: yeah and, and something else you mentioned is leaf off imagery i know a ton of guys are big proponents of leaf off imagery so when you're looking at an image that is leaf off versus having leaves on what is that telling you what are you looking for specifically in a leaf off image
1: uh densities thick areas that you can see what's hardwoods, what's pines, what's tornado blowdown regrowth, what's clear cut regrowth, that kind of thing. You know, when it's all leaf on you can't really see that stuff. I mean leaf on has advantages in certain you know, like if you're looking at a swamp, leaf on actually is helpful I think, to see bigger crown trees and stuff like that and but mostly leaf off is the you know, I, I would prefer to see in most cases.
0: And then I assume you're focusing on those dense areas, like the edges or the perimeters of those.
1: Yeah. I mean, the way it it works in the area where I'm hunting and everybody's (laughs) in their own situation, but Northern Wisconsin, uh, it's kind of rolling hills, kind of packed with smallish swamps and it's got a lot of variety, but it's not, mm, I don't know. It's not hill country. It's not swamp country. It's kind of the intermix of all of that stuff. So when I'm looking at that, the, um, thick i call it the dark woods when i'm looking at it but if i'm looking at a new area let's say i'm looking for a a, a patch of maybe 20 to 30 40 acres where it's just all kind of thick and gnarly looking you know because i I know that it it, well there's probably going to be some deer in there Uh, i don't hunt in the thick gnarly stuff but uh, i I hunt around that with some of the other you know advantages that i was trying to describe earlier but um Pretty much all the spots that I end up having good success at are all near that kind of sick, nasty stuff or, uh, you know, or a, or a big swamp or it, it, I don't hunt a lot of like areas that aren't close to that anymore. So,
0: yeah. So if I'm hearing you correctly and I'm a new big woods hunter, one of the best things I can do is get on the Sentinel hub playground Find myself some oak trees and then get a leaf off image, find some dark stuff, dark timber is, or or would you call it dark woods, yeah, I mean
1: yes, I call it the dark, dark woods, but on the map is just dark it, that's how it is in my eyes i'm red green colorblind, but uh you know I just it, you know it's thick the the beauty of the leaf off stuff is you can tell the thick areas versus the more open woods areas and and that's huge, you know,
0: yeah, so if you find. A good stand of oaks close to some of that dark woods, and like as far as narrowing down an area to at least investigate—that's that's a huge clue, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. And I kind of prefer a smaller stand of oaks as opposed to you know, I want a forty-acre ridge of oaks if I can avoid it. I mean, I I like a little small corner of oaks somehow, or you know, patch so they're they're close by when they do come in, type of thing. But you know, if, even if you have a giant forty acres of oaks. As long as you can find the exact exit trail where the those are coming in and out, you set up right there. I mean, that's still a pinpoint location to kill, you know. And I'm I'm talking about a, a buck following a doe, obviously.
0: Sure. Now, again, ton of great tips there. A lot of that stuff that, that I think will be news to people. So appreciate all the excellent mapping tips there. And that's going to lead into, once you've reviewed the maps, you need to get out there and you, me, everybody that's doing this, and put boots on the ground. I mean, maps have come a long way, reading maps. And like I don't know if the science isn't the right word, but the science behind reading maps and kind of relating that to deer movement. But now you got to get out there in the woods, and the big woods can be intimidating for a lot of people to navigate. Like you said, you're talking 1,000 square miles, a lot of big roadless areas. So talk to me about your best practices for navigation in the big woods. Before we get to Keith's navigation tips, I want to take a break to mention huntingbeastgear.com. Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet. www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick. Beast Gear climbing sticks also feature non staggered inline stacking and double steps, all in a 2.2 pound package, including the fastening strap. HuntingBeastgear.com has also released the game changing Beast Gear Hang On Tree Stand. Designed to be the ultimate hang on tree stand solution with four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear stand features a 16 inch wide by 29 inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds and it does it all without compromising strength or durability. The beast gear stand is finished with a long lasting anodized coating and features grade eight hardware, high quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details or to place your order today, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. Now back to the podcast.
1: Well, you know, the way I'm doing this, it's very important to be able to just move freely throughout whatever area you chose to hunt. You know, I got, I'm hunting like maybe like a 40 square mile area where there's lots of things for me to explore. A lot of it, I've never even set foot in yet, but I plan to, but well, I don't want to be limited and say, Ooh, I don't know how to get back in there. or I, this and that. So one of the most important things that I do is it starts with looking at, when you're looking at the maps, you know, when you're first trying to figure out an area that you're going to hunt and then you finally do say, why well, is like this area here? Well, then I'm looking at how am I going to, Perhaps get in here. let you know, and, and I kind of will pre-select and draw a track. And I'll do that on on Google Earth. You know, I, I'll but I'll be looking at other maps. I'll be looking at the GIS because they got the good leaf off. You know, and I'll see. Oh, geez, there's been a windstorm. You can see all these blown down trees on this. So I, am kind of looking at them both and It's sometimes a painstaking thing, but sometimes not. You can just draw a track that you think will get me back in there. So that way, you know, I I follow that in when I go uh, my scouting mission in the springtime then. And I, um, you know, and, and if it seems like, yeah, this is, this, this is definitely a spot I want to check out. If it's active, I'm going to maybe be able to hunt over here or I can hunt over there. But then, it, you know, maybe on the way out, uh, you, you might refine the way you walk and man, on the way in, you figured out, yeah, most of this was good, but man, that was a pain in the ass over there. That right. 300 yards, you know, so I kind of manufacture on the way out, uh, the the route that I want to save and I might, you know, walk away and then decide, oh geez, this isn't gonna work and I backtrack exactly on my trail and you know, I kinda of figure out eventually you can come up with something that gets you out and save that whole mess on Google Earth and then refine it. When you get, you know, back home and all that, you got time, to just sit down and just draw that and then you can okay, so then you got that. Now I, I am not one that uses a, a phone app when i'm out in the woods i have onyx on my phone i do not use it for navigating but i'm sure guys can do exactly what i'm talking about i know you can send, save tracks and this and that but what i do is i use with the garmin gps which i know you have one because i saw it in a picture once uh, on one of your blogs but um it, it has the ability to make a custom map so i and all that means is this kmz map which is that's what the aerials are. And when you're doing overlay in Google Earth, you're going to save it when you're done. And they, it's called a KMZ. It's just a, a way a picture is geo referenced over a map. That's, I don't know why they call it that, but that's what it's called. Well, the Garmin, they can read KMZ maps. So you can, what I do is I make every year, I kind of assemble all my tracks that I want to use and keep the ones from the previous year or eliminate ones I don't want. I keep all those in one. Folder, and so I can click that folder on or off. I click it on, and they're all there. And I make it a yellow color because that I can see that really good. And then you can you can save a map. You can save a topo map. You can save a, a, a aerial as a KMZ. You can do all this in CalTopo. You can you can do this in uh, Google Earth too, actually. But uh I save a map. Okay, just an aerial that I'm going to put on my GPS that's got all those tracks embedded into it. So it's not like I have to toggle tracks on and off, depending on what area I'm going to or whatever, they're all there always. And so, and they're bright yellow, so I call them my yellow brick roads, okay? And it's kind of <laughs> like my my road system through there, honestly. I know some of them are more like the interstate. I just always get into a certain general area on this one, but then I can branch off and, you know, it works really, really well. You can draw them on a spur of the moment and just, like I did this year, I, I drew one so me and my buddy could get in where i shot my deer in the dark and, and get at them you know we came in a whole different way purely by manufacturing a track doing that and it, it worked out good so anyway you know i do it on a garmin because i just feel more confident i mean the ruggedness of those things and uh I, I do have my onyx as a backup and i guess i would encourage anybody that's using their phone mainly maybe ha- get a, a regular gps as a backup or something because out there you you just want to be confident and comfortable. I don't want to be worried. You know, I, I don't care if it's dark or not. I don't, it doesn't matter. I mean, I go wherever I got to go and I'm rarely on any kind of trail. It's always cross country this way, cross country that way. And it doesn't matter because my little system works really well uh, doing it that
0: way. Well, I think Keith, uh, the voice of experience, right? So I've talked about this on the podcast. I've had my issues and in, in once or twice in bigger woods areas, of getting lost early on in my hunting career, and my system now, it reflects yours quite a bit because I do have a handheld Garmin GPS. Now, these days, I do navigate by phone a lot just because it's more convenient, but if I'm in an area that I haven't been in before, I actually rely on the handheld GPS much more just because, like you said, it's more rugged. I personally, with my Garmin, I've never had issues maybe i've had issues with the accuracy being a little less than desired instead of being 10 yards it might be 50 yards you know which sometimes in a swamp that's a big deal but i've had onyx completely crash on me and lose tracks multiple times i'm talking 10 15 20 times and if you're in a new area that is not a good feeling if that's your primary mode of navigation so i'm with you in big woods uh, i see out here in the montana in the mountainous terrain anywhere you're unfamiliar with especially if it's going to be dark a handheld GPS is a great idea, and then I I always add now again after being lost a few times, I still carry a, a regular compass. So you know you oh, mentioned yeah. you mentioned having a phone along with the GPS for redundancy. I like the compass too because if all else fails, now I always look when I leave my vehicle, and I know I'm going generally. You know north, south, east, west. How do I get back? What direction generally do I need to walk to the nearest road? So if everything else fails, I at least have a bearing to get back to a road.
1: Yes, I'm glad you said that because I for sure have a compass with you. And I mean, I have a feeling you're hunting way more wide open spaces than I am. I mean, I could, it, if I walked three miles in one direction, I'd hit some kind of road somewhere, no matter where I'm at. So, yeah, I'm not too worried about having staying in in, in at night if I got lost, but I ain't getting lost.
0: Well, yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, in, it out. in the dark too, during the day, a lot of times it's pretty easy to keep your bearings but most of the times that I've gotten pretty turned around, it's been at night with no moon. You know, you can't hardly get a bearing off anything in like North Woods, thick cover. A lot of times you can't even see the sky when you're in those dense stands of pines. So it's a lot oh, easier yeah. to get lost in that type of terrain.
1: Yeah, and, and the cold weather too. I mean, I hunted late season up there one time. It was like 10 below when I got done. And I had my phone in my inside pocket the whole time. And I was going to call my... My, my people at my cabin and say I'm gonna probably be a little bit later than I said I would. I couldn't because the phone was dead, even though it was inside my clothes. But my GPS worked like perfect all the way out. Got me out like slick. So I would never personally rely on my phone as my major uh, navigator. But that's just me. I'm old.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. No, the cold's a good point too. And uh, whenever it starts getting colder, if people that don't know a lot of people know this now. Lithium batteries are much less affected by cold than traditional alkaline batteries. So when yeah. when you're getting into cold situations, and they seem to power those handheld GPSs quite a bit longer. Of course, they're more expensive, but but when you look at the benefits of them resisting the cold and lasting longer, that seems like a no brainer. I mean, I use lithium in mine. Yeah, I 100% agree on that. Yep. And then one other thing from from this discussion. We talked about KMZ, and you kind of explained that. But for people that don't know, KMZ is just a file extension like .pdf or .doc for you know Microsoft Word document. So, what software are you using? Are you exporting your KMZ files right from Google Earth into your Garmin, or are you using some intermediate software to do that?
1: Um, I save them in you know uh, a separate place, like my documents, but I also put them on a a thumb drive or whatever too it's like i always have them but um yeah and from there you can just if it's just like when you plug your garmin in it's just like a, a little external hard drive then too you can just move the files back and forth that way i don't go directly from google earth to the garmin i save it as a document and then from there i import it over into my but you might be able to do it directly i've never done that
0: so when I first got mine and my handheld GPS, I'm due, I'm way overdue for an update. Mine's like 10 years old. Yeah, you have old, a
1: 400. Right? I saw that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I used to use something that was a Garmin application called Basecamp. Are you still using that, or is that even a thing anymore?
1: Uh, it's a thing. I have never really used it. I never found it very intuitive. I've always used a thing called uh, Expert GPS. probably one of the very first uh, mapping-type GPS interactive softwares that was I've had mine for over 15 years, probably not that it's the best one out there. I, honestly, Cal Topo will do everything you need just fine too. I think, I um, mean, you can make generate the KMZ files that I keep talking about and save them. And then you can put them on your, your Garmin. And I know nothing about putting files on phones. I don't know if you can do that back and forth. You probably can, but uh, I'll have to have someone else, you know, pipe in on that one.
0: There is some limited functionality on Onyx to do that, but I think it's, definitely easier like you said drag and drop the files and into the garmin and the hard drive on there yeah Yeah, that's pretty straightforward so you you talked about yellow brick road and then you talked about dark woods because you're you're colorblind keith and yeah yeah eight percent of men are colorblind a lot more than women so what kind of challenges has that presented to you as a hunter and how do you overcome those or or how do they affect you
1: well i did a little calculation 1700 uh these members are colorblind, because uh, whatever that's eight percent. Um And so, what that means to somebody that doesn't have any idea is like red is invisible essentially. It's the same exact color as brown and 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 red. I mean, and green. So, blood on the ground is it, it's as if you took a sprinkling can for watering flowers and walked through the woods dribbling water through the woods and then had your friend go try to follow it. I mean, your color vision seeing friend. I mean, how hard it is for red, green, colorblind people. So basically, you got to have a good buddy, you know, uh, if you're colorblind like I am and uh, you end up being the toilet paper guy hanging the toilet paper at last blood. But uh, (laughs) I mean, there's some things. Yeah, I know. It's it's a little bit humiliating, but it's not that bad. Um, And, you know, there's some things like this year we tried uh, this luminol stuff that they make the blood glow because when it hits iron which hemoglobin in blood is iron but uh you know you got to have blood we my the deer I hit wasn't really dropping blood on the ground so it, that didn't work for us but I think it, I mean honestly it looked like an awesome awesome product it would work great if you actually had a blood trail to follow it but unfortunately up where I'm hunting, everything the whole forest is like iron-containing compounds. Oh boy! And the whole forest floor kind of takes this eerie blue glow. But if we did hit a couple specks of blood, and you could definitely see the difference. But so anyway, I would recommend anybody that's colorblind maybe experiment with that a little bit. Also, this recently, I had a, a friend of mine who is an ophthalmologist. He had I don't know where he got him or why he had him, but he had these glasses have filters on them and, you know, look kind of like sunglasses, but and they're meant for people that draw blood for a living. They're called vein finder glasses. And some, I don't know exactly how it works, but it filters out wavelengths that counteract the red wavelength or something. So it makes the red signal stronger and it allows people to see veins basically when they're drawing blood. It's pretty amazing. But the more amazing thing is like when I put these things on, I can actually see the color red. I'm sure it's not what you're seeing, but it turns almost looks like orange or it's, it's like a bright color that's like, so I haven't, I, I have never tried blood trail with this stuff, but I tell you one thing, When I'm looking at maps now online or like if I'm on the hunting beast and somebody's posting something and they're saying, well, the, the pink X is this and the purple dot is that, that is completely meaningless to me. But When I put those glasses on, I couldn't see everything. It's amazing.
0: That's very interesting.
1: So, any of the blood, you know, colorblind uh, guys out there that can't see blood, uh, they're called uh, oxy iso vein finder glasses. I, I, I don't know. They're they're pricey, but honestly, I, I would spend the money because it'll open up a whole lot of things that you wouldn't ordinarily see. So, you know, another thing, being colorblind, that I've learned, a buddy of mine came up with this idea, is when you grid search and I found a couple of my biggest bucks by grid searching. Cause you know, blood trail was non-existent or petered out and we couldn't find them. So I would go out. On, anyway, you take where last blood is that you found, you kind of mark that as a waypoint. And then you take your GPS or from your phone, but you, you kind of push the go to waypoint navigate thing and, and go to your compass view. And it, the, the arrow kind of pointing to your waypoint. So a long story to tell you that it'll allow you to walk arcs around the blood and you can and they put one guy at 100 feet, one guy at 200 feet or whatever and walk that arc and it keeps you really exactly online and then you next guy goes to 300 and 400 and you come back on an arc that way. And I'm telling you, it works amazingly well versus what I read about guys doing is trying to walk, you know, squares and following straight lines back and forth and man, the only way to make that work in my opinion would be staring at your or your GPS. The way I'm doing it, you're looking around and you look at oh I'm ninety feet away, I gotta just veer off to the right a little bit here and keep walking. It's just it's a way the grid search way more efficiently and exactly. So throw that out there. I never used a dog, never hired a dog, I don't know, but uh you know, it seems to be kind of the a new thing. Everybody's doing it now, but uh, I'm sure it would be awesome to, to hire a dog to come in and find them. But usually by the time I get done messing around, the dog wouldn't have a chance of finding it anyway. So,
0: yeah, that's the thing with the dog. It's like, and I'm with you. I, I like to try to track the deer, but if you're going to use a dog, pretty much the conventional wisdom at this point is just stay out of the area completely.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, it's a little bit of a pride thing. I kind of like I got this. Okay, yeah, I'm colorblind, but I, I think I can still do it type of thing. So. Like my one buddy was just who was saying you should, you should hire a dog, get a dog. I said, oh, I'm gonna try to grid search again and found
0: them. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, yeah, and that's I was happy about that. Great tip on the arcs too, or, or using a track at all. I know a lot of people that when they lose blood, they just start walking around all over. It's like even if you are trying to walk a square, if you do put a track on your handheld GPS or your Onyx or whatever you're using. At least, you know, that way you have a good idea of what you've covered already versus, you know, randomly. Did I go here already? Did I not? Was I five oh, feet yeah. away from this or 50 feet? I don't really know. With those tracks, you know, you can have a lot better idea.
1: Exactly. Well, that's what the search and rescue divers do when they're down there looking for a body. They, they're on a rope, a feather, and they swim that arc and then they let themselves out, whatever, 50 feet and swim that arc. And it's the same exact thing. And that way you're not missing anything You know.
0: Yeah. And that's a, that's a great analogy there. If it works in that kind of application, it seems like uh, they're doing that for a reason. Yeah. Well, while we're picking on you here, Keith, <laughs> you're on the backside of the bell curve too. And it comes to the average age of hunters being 62 <laughs> years old. So part of that means you cut your teeth in an arrow without all the resources that are available to hunters today. And, and good for you for using the ones that are available today, but in your experience, of people that grew up, you know, in the Onyx era or whatever, you know, Google Maps era, because that's been around for a while now. What are new hunters missing when it comes to woodsmanship?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, interesting. I I got three young guys in my life. I got a son-in-law and his brother. They're like 27 and 30. And I got a nephew who's 30. And all three of them, this was their first year deer hunting, bow hunting. uh, And they all three got deer. Two of them opening weekend. One was early October. And I'm thinking, wow, you guys, that's amazing. I'm happy for them and excited for them. And it's like, it took me like several years to get a button buck when I started. Because, I mean, they are the launching pad for the young guys. They have no idea how far ahead. They're like as good now as I was after 20 years of hunting. They got all that information. But having said that, you know, if I were talking to young hunters and saying, well, you know, you ought to maybe be careful about this or ought to think about doing this, I would say maybe be careful with how you're using trail cameras, you know, I mean, they're a ton of fun. And with, especially with the cell cameras, you know, I think those things are are, are addicting as far as I can tell, but, uh, I kind of think they tend to dull your observation skills maybe, or developing the ability to read the woods. If you're kind of leaning too much on that when you're in your growing years, um, there's a definite trend of multiple cell cams over bait piles and, this and that and hopping around, chasing pictures, you know, you know, I call it whack-a-mole hunting. <laughs> I think you'd be better off learning how to observe sign and just trying to pay attention. My recommendation to them would be use, use uh, trail cameras. Cause man, they definitely teach you a lot and that I want everybody to have fun out there and all that. And maybe like when you're approaching one of your cameras, kind of look around what the sign looks like you know, and kind of maybe try to predict, okay, what am I going to see on this camera? What made these tracks right here? And just kind of start maybe putting some relative observations to the pictures. So you're learning something, not just seeing pictures, you know, Um, that's how trail cameras have helped me. That's kind of like help me interpret the sign that I'm seeing. Basically that's about all they've really done for me. But, um, you know, I, I guess I would challenge them to figure out ways to gauge the sign that you're seeing, like what kind of animal made this, and, and I like Dan Infault's measuring technique with his hands, that is brilliant you know, I, you always got that hand with it you. you just put it down there and measure it and you kind of learn what you can kind of get a general feel for what kind of animal made it, you're not always right obviously, but, uh, and the whole you're talking about
0: track size, right?
1: Track size, yeah, yep and measuring tracks with, with something and the hand is, is perfect, I think and the whole rub height thing, you know figure out you know like Dan's a lot taller than a lot of us so he keeps talking about this high and high well for me if it's belt high that's pretty pretty high rub for me, but uh uh figure that out. Um, and the deer the dropping size, you know, like I've learned that if my thumbnail and the tip of my thumb it's the turd is bigger than that. That's the deer I'm interested in, and, you know, just kinda try to figure stuff like because. Most of the time you're going to get on deer with that kind of observation, not because of what a trail camera is telling you. So figure that kind of stuff out, you know, and I don't know, you said three things. So I I didn't really come up with another uh, woodsmanship thing, but I'm just saying to the young guys, everybody seems like they're pressured into shooting big bucks right off the bat and just relax, take it, have fun. I don't know. It's just a little bit weird with that.
0: Yeah, on the cameras, I think you brought up a good point, and I found myself being guilty of this, too. When I had a camera out in the woods, it was like a lot of times, especially almost everybody I know has got a a day job, right? Your time's limited. You got a girlfriend or a wife and kids, and it's like, oh, I want to get out there and see what's on the camera, and I would just walk a beeline to it, and I wouldn't even be hardly looking around half the time, versus (laughs) now, uh, I haven't used cameras, actually, since I moved to Montana, partly because... Some of the areas I hunt are far away and it's like impractical to check them. Uh, Some of the areas I hunt are what's called block management out here. And those are private lands that the landowner can enroll for public hunting. But those are only open during the season. So you can't go on those lands outside of the season. You know, you can't put a camera out in July or you can't pick your camera up in February. So I don't run cameras uh, nearly as much as I used to. But now I find myself when I am out and hunting, I'm a lot more in tune with, like you said, looking for the sign those other indicators you know track size uh dropping size rub height all that stuff that you can gather and like you said you can start correlating what size sign am i seeing and kind of get an idea what type or what size deer you expect to be around there if you're not seeing any of that big sign you know you kind of discount that area or if you're seeing a lot of big sign then maybe that's an area you want to focus on yeah right yeah that's good synopsis so let's get back to the the hunting bed slash bedding areas versus preferred food sources so sounds like you're doing your big woods hunting early november but you mentioned oaks. so how are you setting up let's say you find one of these clusters of oaks you know where there's 5 10 20 oaks and you find some of this dark woods how are you positioning yourself in there like how are you you know are you placing your stand closer to the bedding area farther away talk to me about your actual setups
1: it kind of depends on the layout of how everything works. You kind of have to depend on where you might have natural shooting lanes is obviously one factor. I'm not doing presets at all. I'm just going in and, you know, hunting on a fly. That's, all this time I've been having the better luck, that's how I've been doing it. I, whereas I used to do presets and all that. So basically you get in there and you have to figure out, you know, where could I be getting shooting at? I kind of tend to like to be on the fringe of the thick stuff where it comes out into the oaks. If if the oaks are right, exactly right there, Cause I if I don't know exactly where they're coming and going, then that's I don't know. I, I I do that. But if there's something else, like um, you know, there is one, let's say an old logging road nearby, but it's a little distant. Maybe it's a hundred yards from the fringe of the thick, and there's oaks between the fringe. And the logging, I I'd sit where I can maybe hit the logging road and maybe the fringe oaks if it sets up that way because I it's, it's, a, it's a, definitely a pattern I've seen where the bucks and even the boys walk right down the damn trail for wh- whatever reason they like to. Um, like this past year, I had I set up, I did like three setups on the first day. One was by some scrapes, and I said ah, I don't feel it here, and I kept going. I set up and walked through some oaks, and we're still pawing. I kept walking where I knew there was another patch. Saw some minimal pine, and then I um, did what I'm just described to you. I kind of found what I thought was an open area, and it actually was a logging road behind me. So I was started just like that, and uh, had young bucks chasing uh, does in and out of the thick stuff. And I think there might have been two different does because there was a couple different. I don't know. I I was a little confused, but there was two different young bucks and two different does running in and out. But uh, so then I. After I saw that happen a couple of times, I moved over right next to the thick stuff where they were coming in and out. And I never had them, you know, come out after that. But, you know, so I, I moved to that spot just based on that observation. And I came back the next day thinking, well, okay, that goes in heat. As soon as the breeding buck is done with the doe he's with now, he's going to find her at night here and hopefully. So I came back and like an hour later, I shot a really nice buck coming following the doe right out that same spot where the young ones were chasing him. So direct visual observation like that especially like a young buck chasing an old or a, a doe around man you you definitely be hunting that spot in the next 24 hours cuz there's a real good chance of that
0: That's something I don't know if anybody's mentioned and that is an awesome tip because the young buck chasing a doe I mean we all know obviously a doe in heat's going to attract bucks and and what you said maybe the dominant buck or the mature buck whatever you want to call it in the area is breeding another doe if those younger bucks are starting to chase her she's getting close and i know from talking to the one deer biologist i had from penn state you know they they could breed with a doe for 48 to 72 hours so if you're seeing that you're on the very front edge of when that's going to be good i mean you got at a minimum probably two days worth of good hunting in that area and the the other interesting thing that that biologist said when i talked to him is during the rut you know everybody knows a buck's home range gets bigger they're traveling a lot more but he said the does actually get smaller they've got gps collar study on that so if you see that you want to be like in that immediate area within you know 100 150 acres you got a real good chance of seeing that doe again the next day and then she's usually got the buck buck parade with her by then
1: yeah i love those gps collar studies that's awesome information
0: yeah for sure so great tip there too yeah thanks let's move on to your hunting equipment so I have a ton of respect for guys that hunt with traditional equipment, which is what you do, and I was combing through the archives of the beast in preparation for this podcast. You had a post a long time ago, and uh, I actually saw it in a couple of your posts over the years about a video that really helped you out, and that video was created and by Rick Welch, and it's titled Accuracy Factor, and it's all about trad shooting. I've actually never seen it. But you mentioned it several times, and I've seen it pop up on some other forums. So talk to me first about how you got started. And you did a little bit early on with traditional archery. Uh, why did you stick with it? And then what did you like or what really helped you out about that Rick Welch video?
1: Yeah, okay. Like the first 10 years, I hunted just with recurve. And sometime about 1985 or 86, I bought a Hoyt Rambo compound bow. Um, I wanted to see what that was all about. Even the late '80s uh, compounds were killing machines, let me tell you. But I, I some about it just didn't feel right to me, so I kind of set it to the side and just picked up my recurves again. And after a few years of collecting dust, I gave that compound to my brother-in-law, <laughs> and I basically had been shooting trad ever since. And I was always a, you know, just a natural, good shot at, when I was young. I mean, kids can do a lot of good things naturally when they're young. And at some point, you start putting pressure on yourself, probably like a golfer or something like that. Although I don't golf, but. Uh, you know, I, I started snap shooting and like launching an the arrow before I was ready on target and target panic or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, had a real bad, uh, session in my shooting for, I don't really remember how, it was more than a couple of years, I tell you that. It was just brutal. But, uh, maimed some deer, missed some, some amazingly good opportunities. And, and then here through the Hunting Beast, I, uh, met a guy who lived fairly close to me and, uh, we, I don't know how we got together exactly, but he came over to my house and he, uh, we were shooting both. I had a, a little range in the back. He shoots traditional, you know, and uh was like, man, was he good. And I was like, holy crap, how how do you shoot so good, you know? And he said, well, you know, I I took a, a weekend class with Rick Welch. I don't worry, he lives somewhere down south, you know, and uh, he was explaining it all to me and trying to give me some pointers and that. And he said, well, you should get a video that he's got called The Act accuracy factory i think is what it's called and uh so i did and it helped me a lot but you know it doesn't fill in all the information gaps but i was definitely improving just by that video and he had another other video i got and it helped me even more but my buddy is a real sociable guy and he he arranged for rick welch to come up and stay at his house you know near me and had a whole bunch of guys lined up and so rick did some of his archery classes up here in wisconsin so i was able to take a half a day lesson with him and uh the man set me straight you know he 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 fixed my head he fixed my head honest to god it made just a huge difference unbelievable basically the way he helped me was his system revolves around like trusting your brain to point to point the arrow you don't consciously aim it like uh, a lot of the other shooting systems. I mean, you're gun barreling down the arrow and using this and that for sight references or whatever. Uh -uh. He, he said, you got to trust your brain to do it. And all you got to concentrate, you you look at the spot, you draw back. And then from that point, you're not thinking about aiming. You're thinking about holding still. You don't have to bother with trying to consciously think of two things at once. He said the subconscious can do so many things all together. So what does that even mean? I mean, I could maybe get, are you left eye or or right eye dominant, Jeremy? Right eye. So, okay, if you were sitting looking at the doorknob or the light switch or something, just facing straight towards it and just keep looking right at the doorknob. Now lift up your right arm and point directly to it without looking at anything but the doorknob. And then move your head over and see where you're pointing. Look right down your arm you're going to be pointing right at that doorknob, even though you didn't aim it like a gun barrel. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, I just did it. And yeah, <laughs> that, that, that is surprising.
1: So, I mean, that's just the way it works. We know how to do that. You know, it's like a quarterback knows where to throw the ball or whatever. But uh, the brain calculates that and knows how to do it. And so, when I, like when I was shooting, he's sitting behind me watching me shoot. And I'd get to the point where I'm drawing and, getting to the anchor and you know he would say believe <laughs> believe he's like trying to give you confidence that even though you didn't take time aiming this thing it's pointing at the right spot so all you're doing is concentrating on that you know holding tight holding still and he's got system for that but taking that out of the equation literally cured me <laughs> it's like wow dude the dude's a genius, you know, and he, and he fixed my arrows and made them shoot straight and all that. And the guy doesn't even have like a, a bow square. I mean, he, he doesn't even have, rely on that. He has all sorts of homegrown methods that he uses that are common sense genius, you know? So, sure. so anyway, um, that's how he helped me. And my God, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me, I think.
0: So you've had i uh, I'm assuming minimal or no issues sense with your, your shooting at deer.
1: Well, you know, I would say I'm not uh, a Robin Hood or anything with my uh, longbow, but uh, yeah, my that uh, anxiety to release the arrow as soon as I draw it back is gone. I, you know, a lot of guys I see them shoot; they just draw and they're boom, they're shooting immediately. I, I and that's I, I'm away from that. I mean, I can I could hold it, yeah, you know, for quite a while if I had to, and it wouldn't be floating all around.
0: So. One of the things you mentioned, though, in that story was you lost your confidence, you had a rough patch of shooting, and I know for a fact that happens to people that shoot compound bows too, and a lot of times it's just like getting back to the basics or, like you said, you have a lesson, and that stuff can really make a difference because you have two or three events in a row where you're shooting at deer, and for whatever reason, whether it's your technique, whether it's the animal moving, we don't expect it, that can really kill your confidence and then you're like you said you're trying to rush the shots and stuff so bringing it back to basics can make a big difference
1: yeah yeah rushing the shot that's that feeling that's a you know so it's taken that away from me i that's all i got to say about how rick helped me but that's in a nutshell that's what happened you know
0: being that you've shot tried your whole life or your whole bow hunting career anyways what tips would you give to someone so i've shot predominantly compound i mean i've Messed around with a trad bow a few times, but never hunted with one. If I was to pick one up, what tips would you give me?
1: I would say pick an expert and follow their advice alone. Don't mix and match different experts' advice. You know, cherry picking that idea and this idea. I just pick one system, follow it, and 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 get it down pat. To me, that's just the most logical way to get into a good place. You can always, and once you're well established with a routine and shooting good, I guess you can always listen to some other stuff and tweak things here and there but that would be probably my best advice is just stick to one expert i would say find a mentor at a local bow club or something and i mean like, there's, there's a lot to it more than just the shooting of the, the arrow set up and this and that and you know it's 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 different than the compound world to some degree and you know trying to figure all that stuff out on your own it would be pretty tough although again with youtube and all the stuff out there i guess it's not as hard as it used to be but sure anyway having somebody right there helping you watching you shoot and helping that that's that's a big one right there
0: i feel like it's almost like uh like a trade like or on the job training where you want to have a, a skilled craftsman to help you out
1: yeah exactly yep I, perfect example and maybe this this one probably will get some guys upset but i think if you're going to do that, shoot if you want to switch and try to shoot a trad bow, I would I would literally zip up the compound in the case and just put it in the closet. I wouldn't keep switching back and forth like, "Oh, I'm going to be hunting a big buck today. I better bring the compound." Uh-uh. Just go with the trad bow, man. It's it literally is as efficient as killing a deer as a compound is. It's just you're more limited in range, you know? That's about it. I honestly think within 20 yards, 18 to 20 yards or whatever, equally effective a proficient trad bow hunter is equally effective as a uh, you know compound proficient hunter yeah within those short ranges because uh guys will argue that all day long probably but that's what i believe
0: i hear a lot that the time commitment or the routine is super important so how often are you shooting your bow in the off season
1: yeah you gotta love doing it first of all i mean if if it's something that's going to be a struggle the to do it frequently, yeah, you might maybe not want to do it. What I do is, I actually rarely shoot from an elevated position, even though I got a tree stand right out of my backyard. But um, I pretty much shoot maybe four times a week all year round. Okay. Uh, one year, one year I didn't shoot for like six months, and when I picked the bow up, I was like,
0: "Oh, we can't
1: So I never <laughs> do that again. I'm gonna stay just shooting year round. But it's a relaxation for me. I get home after work. down in a basement turn some tunes on have a couple beers and i'll shoot a little 13 yard range i got down there you know shoot 15 20 shots i'm good that's all i you know i don't have to do more than that but just kind of keeps it going so you definitely want to be having fun doing it if it's kind of pure dedication to do it then probably not for you you know
0: sure yeah and i'd equate that to hunting big bucks if it's work you're probably not going to shoot very many big bucks in your life
1: yeah, right, yeah.
0: exactly. I want to circle back to something. I guess I maybe I should have covered this earlier, but talking about big woods earlier, you talked about, one, deer density is just lower, and it used to be higher maybe in the 90s, 15 deer per square mile. You say maybe you're seeing five deer per square mile now, and with less deer comes less deer sign. So I'd be interested to know what type of sign and how much sign do you need to see in a big woods location before you'll throw a sit at it.
1: Well, it comes back to looking for it where you expect it to be, number one, because you're not going to see a lot of torn up stuff, okay? And so the areas I was describing, the, the bedding terrain, uh, hopefully the features that draw the deer out of the bedding terrain, the logging road intersection or whatever the hell it is. But um, so that's number one, looking in those types of areas. Number two is, I mean, pretty much any hint of a f- fresh animal, I mean it literally could be a fresh fawn dropping at the exit of thick bedding cover and I would hunt there, you know, fresh doe dropping, whatever. Uh, I tell you, scrapes uh, have a much higher, I have much higher regard for scrapes than I have ever had in the past for m- many reasons. And One of them is they're a, really a, a good way to judge It's kind of like a litmus test for the activity in this general area that you're entering. If I'm Maybe weaving in and walking a couple hundred yards on some segment of an old logging road, and I see three scrapes on that. I'm thinking, you oh, know, okay, you know, I just, that's a good sign that there's general activity in the area, and I can go with my terrain based bedding knowledge and all that and, and figure it off from there. So I think scrapes are a real good gauge for the general activity of an area. Fresh rubs are not really a good, <laughs> real, I don't rely on them much at all up in the big woods. I don't really find that many. And, I don't know that they're smoking hot fresh, even if I do find them, or were they two weeks ago? I mean, it's two weeks ago, it may not really help you right now. So I do pay attention to old rubs. If if you got yourself a concentration of old rubs in a spot there, you know, I I definitely factor that in, and especially if they tend to be, you know, bigger rubs, it's like, yeah, this area has the potential to house a, you know, a nice mature buck, but Maybe he's not here now because there's not as many deer, this and that, but at least the terrain is, is good for it. So I keep I keep an eye out for, for that. And as I mentioned earlier, kicking up deer is <laughs> a really big one for me. Not that subtle, I guess, but, um and, you know, pawing for acorns and your bedding, blah, blah. We, everybody knows about that. Um Some years, though, I, yeah, I'd say like one, one out of every four years, there's like no acorns. O- otherwise, there's some acorns or sometimes a lot of acorns. If there seems like there's no acorns, I head to the piney areas, like the darker forest. And I like it to have like low wet areas in there, but higher drier areas too. And at that time of the year, if there's no mast out there, they're eating the green stuff, you know, the weedy, the grass, the wet lush green stuff growing. And they're going to be in, in the pines. They're not going to be out in the hardwoods. You can walk all day long out there and, and it seems like there's not a deer in the whole woods, you know, but you get into the, into the piney area. And suddenly, you can see the poop. You can see the tracks. It's not fluffy leaf cover. And, uh, and, and they're in there eating that, whatever's growing in there, you know, you know, and stuff like maybe Beaver Dam crossing. Literally there aren't deer trails up there anymore. It used to be, you could see, I don't know, the does families moving through and the deer trails that cut up the leaves with their hooves or whatever. There's none of, you can't find a trail up there anymore. It's kind of kind of crazy. And I don't really this is my thinking on that. I don't think that's because only because of deer density. I believe that the deer have uh adapted again talking wolves here I think the deer have made some changes. I don't think they they mix it up. Man. I don't think they're just walking back and forth bedding to feeding, bedding to feeding. I think they change their feeding area like frequently and you know maybe they come back to that one feeding area two weeks later or a week later, but they don't just keep hitting it every night, so they're not developing the trails, and that's keeping those wolves, again, kind of off their backs a little bit. So but it makes it hard. You can't really see trails anywhere, ever. It's kind of stupid.
0: Now that's an interesting hypothesis with the wolves and how that could be impacting behavior. I wanted to go back to scrapes real quick. So you talked about you place a lot more priority on scrapes now than you ever did before are you ever hunting over scrapes or are you just using those more for an activity gauge in the area
1: yeah i definitely plan to hunt scrapes more moving forward you know based on the luck that my buddy had on his converging logging road scrape situation there i mean i a couple few years ago i i actually hit a deer that i unfortunately could not find And it just happened to be a scrape that was at the intersection of two logging roads right next to some oak trees. And that's kind of when my brain started clicking about the scrapes here. I can't remember. I have a buddy that's hunted heavy over scrapes this year uh, with cell cams, and he got a nice buck doing that. So they they hold a whole lot more hunting value than I've given them credit for in the past. But I do tend intend to come up earlier and hunt the last week of October this year. Um, which will put me more in the scrape week, and uh, then switch over into hunting the uh, chasing bucks and the lockdown bucks.
0: Yeah, that's an important point. You mentioned scrape week, and that's something I've you know talked to John Eberhart before. The guys from Exodus talk about that. It seems like for hunting purposes, not deer activity, but for hunting purposes, there's a pretty small window of you know five to ten days where you're getting daylight visits from bucks. And was your friend with the cell cams? Was he seeing that same thing late October? First couple days of November, maybe?
1: Well, you know, he's kind of pulling off the Troy Pottinger thing. It's all uh, mock scrapes and in addition to that, he had a pile of bait of some sort in some sort of triangle sort of fashion and he was right in the middle. I I didn't quite get the logistics of everything he said, but uh, he was sending me pictures because I was asking him to. I said, man, just send me some pictures of these big bucks. I want to see what the woods holds up here, you know,
0: and
1: he had a whole lot of pictures coming in and it was November 12th, 13th, whatever. He's still sending me pictures of bucks coming in. So I don't know exactly how that works, but, uh, I think there may be more of a window than even a week, but I don't know. I'm not an expert at all on that.
0: Yeah. So talking about trail cameras, you said it's a good tool, but it's easy to overuse. What are you using for trail cameras? Or, I guess, not what are you using, but how are you using trail cameras if you're using them at all and, and anything that you do different in the big woods versus like farm country?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess 10, 15 years ago, I would put five or six cameras out in April when I went out scouting and I'd pick them up in November when I was up hunting. And I mean, they taught me some stuff. They told me how big the bucks can get up there. And one thing it, it taught me was that, yeah, like primary doe bend areas, I think. Are the areas where you're going to be seeing a lot of fawns? If you put your camera up in April and just leave it there, and you get a lot of fawn pictures in May and June and all that, I mean, you got yourself a a nice doe bedding area where they feel you know safe raising their fawn. So that taught me a lot. So basically, when I'm up there in April and I find the fresh sign where the does are presently hanging out, I that's pretty important observation. I think that is their favorite. I, you know, not that they stayed there all year, but that's one of the main ones, in my opinion. When I was doing a, a lot of buck bed scouting and that, I would put a lot of cameras, well, not a lot, but five or six, and I had, and I, I'd set them up on like what I thought was exit trails on what I thought was for sure mature buck bedding. And man, talk about it slap in the face. I, I, I definitely, definitely do not have that pe- figured out, that <laughs> single Northwoods bed stuff, because it was just ridiculous how bad I did when I tried doing that. But that just kind of reinforces my idea, my strategy of sort of hunting the general bedding area, but just a little bit off where there's some kind of a, a draw for the animal to come to you. I'll tell you one cool thing. I, I have put a couple uh, cameras over beaver dams and just the most interesting camera sets you can ever imagine. I mean, every mammal in the forest crosses there, and birds and really cool, that, but uh, not really helpful for deer hunting necessarily. So, I mean, today, all I'm doing is like one or two cams. I got one out there right now that I put up last April. <laughs> I checked it when I was up there in, in early October just to see because I had found what I thought was a big buck bedding point. in it, And it was because he did come through there a couple of times, but only like a few times the whole damn, you know, summer. So, I don't know. It's a tough, tough gig up there with the cameras. I it, To me, if I couldn't use trail cameras at all, it would make zero difference for my hunting style up there you know
0: sure so you're much more of uh, hunting areas based on where they should be based on maps and or where they're likely to be then as opposed to using trail camera intel to hunt down your bucks
1: yeah i mean i, I gotta physically check each likely spot until i find something that says they're here now and that's
0: hunting you know that's what i'm doing sure no, it makes a lot of sense so let's switch gears here keith you uh, again when i was prepping for this Read through, not some, a bunch of your old posts, but I don't know, 50 pages worth, a whole bunch. And uh, (laughs) you had a lot of great gear tips and I've kind of assembled them here and I want to talk over them because one of the things that I think is real important, I've been hunting a lot more on the ground out here and anybody that listened to my podcast with uh, Jordan Krakowski, their marsh marsh buster way back in the beginning.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. he, He, that was it. It was
0: great. Yeah, he talked about face paint and I don't like painting my face, but I do think it's important to cover your face. And I forgot all about these. You talked about those head headnets and I wear I wear glasses, so I was like, Oh man, that's a great tip because a lot of these head nets you're wearing, you know, they're not breathable, so you're fogging up your glasses and stuff. So how did uh how did you start using those and, and is there anything else that I didn't mention already? What do you like about those?
1: Yeah, I mean I still use them to this day. I've been using them for I don't know. Thirty-five years, probably. I get them at Three Rivers Archery. They still sell them, but um, and they last pretty much forever. But I just got some new ones. I don't know. I mean, they they they're stretchy, so they're form fitting to your face, but they're not like constricting. If I used a looser one, my bowstring would catch on it and that. But it keeps you a little warmer in the cooler weather. But uh, you know, and there's nothing too exciting to say about them. And one thing, when that early season, I set I spray them with the, the Sawyer pyrethrin uh, or whatever it's called, the bug spray. Oh yeah, not permethrin, not permethrin, but their mosquito spray.
0: Picardin or whatever it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, there you go.
0: Yeah.
1: I just kind of soak it, almost. Uh, I spray it pretty good, and then when I get to my tree, I just pop it on there and keeps the bugs away without having to worry too much about your head. There, pretty basic, but it's something I always, always use and probably always will. And you're right, it does not steam up the glasses, and yeah, works good.
0: So, tell me about your secret uh, bow rope winding technique.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I wish it was my idea. I saw it demonstrated at Wisconsin Deer and Turkey Show one time. A guy was doing it, but yeah, you just kind of wind your bow rope around your pinky and your thumb in a sort of an alternating figure eight, kind of crisscrossing between each loop, I guess you call it. And that way, it just never tangles. And it's simple and fast to do and works. Every single time. And, uh, hell, I even use that with my, uh, extension cords at home now. I kind of alternate it around my elbow and my, my hand and it keeps them from being a tangled mess every time I use them. So pretty simple little thing, but
0: that's a great tip because anybody that's wound one conventionally just in a loop like I have several times, my bow rope's got about 50 knots in it because it never, <laughs> never comes out straight. So when I read that, I was like, I'm going to definitely have to give that one a try this year.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool. There's, some guy has a YouTube on it somewhere I saw recently, but uh, it's a good little tip.
0: Yeah. And another thing, and this is a tip that I read from you, I set things down quite often in the woods and then I leave them there forever because I can't find them. So you had a good <laughs> good tip to avoid that. What are you doing to to help make your gear easier to find?
1: Uh, yeah. I, uh, I put little squares of reflective tape, like 3M tape or whatever, on like virtually... Every item I bring in the woods with me, including my finger tab, I mean, my GPS, my phone, my car keys, anything. I I got them on my, a loop of that around the back and the front of each of my arrows. I mean, it's come in handy. I've lost an arrow in a thick brush and circled back with a flashlight and boom, there it was, you know. Uh, Plus, if you hit a deer and it drops out, you can see it laying there in the forest and go get it but uh yeah one time I actually did lose my GPS I had my back I didn't need it because I was farm country and whatever I was just hiking out and I was going through some thick stuff apparently left a pocket open on my uh backpack and I got back to the truck and I was looking around like where the hell is my GPS anyway I backtracked with my flashlight and found it easy with the tape on there reflecting back at me and you know I'll tell you probably the most important thing I do with it I, I put it on By climbing sticks on the top tube, just a square of it right on the middle, you know, main tube, and then a little bit, a little loop on the end of each step, and I I mean, I use a a LED light when I'm getting out of the tree, and it, you know, like a landing strip coming down, it's really easy not to miss a step or something.
0: Another great tip, I actually had shoulder surgery a few years ago, and and part of the reason I messed my shoulder up so bad, I was climbing out of my stand at night, and I thought I was on the last step and I wasn't. Then I caught all my weight on my one arm, jerked it out of the socket and, and, and then tore my labrum. So maybe if I would have had reflective tape on my sticks, I wouldn't have done that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I've seen guys using glow tape, glow paint, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but yep. I, I'm sure that I've used the same end. But uh.
0: Those are just the tips that I found. you got any other tips from your, your years of experience that you think maybe you're doing that other people wouldn't? That'd be helpful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I got a few little weird things I do. Like, I don't really use a grunt call very often, but when I go up north for the rut type stuff, I, I do. I have carried the True Talker with me, which kind of got, like, bicycle inner tubes stretched over it or some kind of weird rubbery thing. Anyway, I always, when I get a new one, I roll the inner tube down, and I take my Dremel tool, and I cut a notch at the point where I get a doe sound with that thing. Because you can roll your finger in different positions to get higher tones or lower tones. So I just lock in the doe sound with the, with the groove. Okay. And then I roll the rubber back so I can feel it with my gloves on even. And so if I need to make a buck call, I know right where to put my finger or the doe call, or you go above that, you can even make the fawn bleat. And that works, man. He, I fooled some bucks. They were looking at me with the, the grunt that wouldn't come in. And as soon as I did a nice little doe and then they turned and it started coming in. You know, it's just a little thing. It, I, it helps me because I think they even send them when you buy a new, they might have some kind of like a rubber band or on there that you're supposed to feel, but it just seems kind of lame. I cut a groove in there and it's good forever. I don't know what else I use. It, well, there's a thing called a nader. It's for climbing. Everybody's using aders with their sticks these days to lighten the weight and this and that. And I've tried all the different ones, uh, including the wire ones and the, I never used the multi-step aiders, but uh, I don't want to go there. But I did try this thing called a nader. that some guy, an, an idea he came up with. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's like a, a loop that goes around the ear arch of your boot. And then attaches up around your knee cap with, with a hook, which works awesome, simply awesome. And you can, you know, whatever, but I've upgraded that. Even I pick in the metal out of it and it's a, I call it, it's not my idea either, I'll just say that, but it's a loop nadir. There's no metal at all, but the, the loop, you just kind of slide it over the step and step into it rather than trying to find that hook and hook it onto the step. Sure. And, you know, it's extremely efficient, and I I, I love it. You know, I So, I mean, you'd have to sort of home make it because uh, they don't make loop nadirs, but just get a regular nadir and try that. I, I highly recommend that.
0: Yeah. And then you're just getting a little extra height out of the same amount of climbing sticks, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. it's Great. Well, Hey Keith, we're getting, uh, you know, on in time here. So we'll go ahead and wrap it up. I appreciate your time. I don't want to take it all, but I have two more questions for you and I like, I like to ask these. So especially I'd like to hear from you on this one. Cause I always like to learn from people that are more experienced than myself. So give me the top three things. That you know now that you wish you would have known thirty years ago that have helped you be more successful.
1: Well, there's no question. Number one is uh, when I figured out where to find deer that are bedded. <laughs> that flipped the switch and instantly starting to get better success. Even though I wasn't necessarily hunting them like Dan Infall teaches, it was a game changer to be aware of. Okay, they're gonna be bedding in here, you know. And I would recommend anybody that isn't. Uh, Confident with that is to get Dan's DVD series, all of them. Doesn't so no matter where you hunt; they're all every, everything's relative. Sure. And uh, and and honestly, uh, to me, the best I, I would go back into the early years of the Hunting Beast and try to read some stuff from like the first I don't know five years or something because everybody was hot on hunting beds, hunting beds, and it's kind of changed a bit now over to whatever it matured. I guess we'll call it. But uh to me, most of the ta- real good bed tactical stuff was back then. So somehow figure out how to find that old stuff maybe second thing i wish i would have known that finding the active pockets of deer will make everything better all your strategies that everybody uses is going to be better if you find the deer first and i forgot for 20 years i did not do that and it's definitely something that you got to put up there in the top three and then you know one maybe the third one is uh and it's more of an experience thing. You can only do it over time. But it's how how to interpret what you're seeing, the sign that you're seeing. I mean, when was it made by what kind of age class buck, and you know what do you think they were doing uh, that kind of thing. And it really helps you to sort of figure out where they're going to be. You know, leverage into into killing a, a nice buck. So, but you can't really just go out and get that stuff. You got to earn it, I guess, over time.
0: Yeah, just like any other pursuit, you want to get better at something, you got to practice.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: And the, the last question would be kind of the opposite of that. Give me three things that you've done in the past that you thought might help your success that turned out to, to not be so helpful.
1: Well, <laughs> the first one that I thought of, and it absolutely is the biggest bust, was the whole scent elimination thing. I took it to the nth level like probably many of us had in our earlier years, and many of us still do, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, I, there's one particular year that I did everything possible thing you could do, and I got out there um, first afternoon. I just got up north, and and everything was totally clean. I had my glasses clean, my watch band clean, my towing rope, my pull-up rope was clean. Everything was perfect, and I got up in a tree, uh, and Bo came out of her bedding area like I was hoping, and she got downwind to me at 40 yards, and (laughs) I was like, all right, I get it. I was the last time I ever did anything. I don't do anything for cent illumination anymore. I don't either. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah, I don't either. You know, I tell you, the other bust that uh, I was thinking about is, uh, I tried my hardest to like saddle hunting, just appealed to like, oh, less stuff, less gear, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, I still do use a saddle as a safety harness, you know, and and that's good for that. But uh, I tell you, I just, I couldn't. Sit still. I couldn't not move, and I got busted by nice bucks up there. And I just said, "Okay, I'm going back to a tree stand, and that's just for that's just me." Sure. I can hurt a lot of feelings out there because that's a pretty popular activity, I know. But uh, yeah, I
0: think it just comes down to find what works for you, right? Different things work for different people. Yeah, it's like, exactly. Just that, gear at the end of the day.
1: J- exactly. That, good. I'm glad you said it that way. You know, I don't know. The other one is not that big a deal, but there was a thing called the. Primo's blood tracking light i bought it for 30 bucks or whatever the hell because i'm colorblind i guess but uh it's a complete waste of money (laughs) (laughs) all it is is like a red led and a green led and it blends them together or not and it's like oh well okay anyway so i would recommend nobody buy that
0: yeah stay away from the gimmicks there's a lot of gimmicks in the hunting industry that's for sure (laughs) for sure yeah well, Keith, I want to say, first of all, thanks a lot. A uh, ton of great information in this. A lot of years of experience, uh, trial and error, I'm sure. A lot of things, a lot of intelligent use of resources these days uh, distilled down here, so appreciate you taking the time and coming on. And then I'd like to turn it over to you to see if you got any final thoughts here.
1: Um, You know, all this stuff about uh, reading the maps and all that, and maybe I'm geeking out here a little bit, but I just want to put, I'm going to say my 10 best views or special views that you can kind of glean from out there on the internet. Sure. And we already talked about like the straight light, view. It's wonderful. If it's just on your GPS, cause you can see every little bump and secondary point and all that, whether you're in hills or you're out in the swamp or whatever, it's amazingly efficient to have that out in the field with you. And it's great on Google earth, as we already talked about for other reasons. And seeing logging roads and that the overlays, it's, If you LiDAR overlay in Google Earth is probably the most important thing you should put in there if you're going to get into that at all, because it just brings out everything. It's easier to see the bedding areas because of the leaf off. You can see the hills compared with the densities and this and that. So that would be one. And also, if you use that LiDAR and you overlay it on our standard topo map, you get these really cool 3D views, and then you can just compare that to other things too. So just it's worth experimenting and looking at it and seeing if you feel like it can help you. And the last LIDAR one, uh, LIDAR over the leaf-on timber views, it, it just shows you all those hidden islands out there and like the swamps that hide everything, you know, little points in that. There's a way to find a lot of that stuff that you would have to walk a lot otherwise. Sure. Then those satellite things, we you know, we talked about the oaks already. I just want to remind people that's a huge one. Get out there and, and look at that, and you'll be surprised how many oaks you do have in your area. Uh, but you have to probably change the date. I noticed northern Minnesota maybe a week earlier than what I said, so maybe like October 10th. And down in southern Wisconsin, it's more like November or end of November. So play around with the time. The satellite, you can also see when the, what the crops are. I know... Onyx has a view, but that's like last year's history. I think. Yeah, it is. You can you can see real time crops with the satellite. All you got to do is know what a cornfield looks like this year, and then you can see every that's cornfield, that's beanfield, that's alfalfa. Boom, just like that. Satellite view uh, the snow. I talked about showing clear cuts. It's also a good way to see when it's time to go up north scouting. I mean, you can see okay, snow is finally gone. I'm going next weekend. You know, whatever or or ice out, okay. The lake's open. Let's go fishing. Shows all that. So play around with it. I mean, it's pretty cool. But anyway, I figured I'd go through that in case I mixed anybody up with all the other talk there. And uh, about <laughs> all I got. And I, I I greatly appreciate the opportunity to talk uh, talk smart about deer hunting with you. I, I mean, it's so much fun for me to talk about this. And I I love your podcast. You're doing a wonderful job. So great job, Jeremy.
0: Appreciate it. And it's uh, it's ninety percent of that is having great guests and i've had a bunch of great guests so thanks to you guys for for coming on and sharing your knowledge because that's what people want to hear you know they want to hear tips from experienced veterans that are getting it done and you definitely fall into that category
1: well i appreciate that
0: yeah so without anything else uh keith thanks for joining me and we'll catch you later i enjoyed it yeah you take care man